Um, so there's this little college in Holland, Michigan called Hope College. It was founded by um, the, uh, a group of Dutch immigrants back in the late 19th century. It uh, has a special place in our hearts because of where I met my wife. But the mascot for Hope College is the Flying Dutchman. And uh, normally speaking, I'm a big fan of the Flying Dutchman, except for today because the Dutch are playing the U.S. women in soccer. And so there's some people who are missing today because they're at home watching the soccer game. And that's, that's okay because they're going to beat the Dutch. I'm okay with that. So anyway, all that to say is it is a great day for you soccer fans, I can imagine. But the rest of us, we are here, and uh, we are not meeting with Chris Tomlin today. I'm sorry. Uh, but we are meeting with, with um, God and and his Holy Spirit, and we've been trying to do that through the book of Acts over the last um, few weeks. And um, because it's Family Sunday, I thought what I would do quickly is just kind of a brief recap, because we are um, uh, just covering the first couple of chapters in Acts so far. And in the first chapter, Jesus tells his disciples to wait in Jerusalem until they receive power from, from heaven. Now, this is one of those phrases that you often hear in the church every now and then around the season of Pentecost. You'll hear this idea of, well, they were supposed to wait for it. But you have to put this into some historical context. Jesus, their rabbi, had just been killed. And if you're a disciple of the guy who has just been martyred, how comfortable are you going to be in hostile territory? Think about that for a moment. So here you have this group of disciples who are more or less in hiding because of what had occurred because their rabbi said, wait. Now he'd been resurrected and that changed everything, but in the early days of this, they had no idea what that was going to look like, what that was going to be like. So Acts chapter 1, wait. You're supposed to be here, wait. Okay, so they do that. Acts chapter 2, if you remember, there's a whole lot of shaking going on. And there's these tongues that appear like fire that go over the heads of all the disciples and they begin to speak in different languages. And there's all kinds of people who are gathered in Jerusalem at that moment in time and they're able to hear the wonders of God in their own language and the response is, what does this mean? It's a fascinating passage. And it says right at the end of chapter 2, It says they enjoyed the favor of all the people. That's significant. Because there's some some things going on that people are in amazement and in wonder. And and they have a certain amount of of favor for this group of of disciples. Chapter 3 comes along. We spent time there last week. Peter and John are doing what they do every day. They go up to the temple for prayer because if you lived in Jerusalem and you were a good Jew, that's exactly what you would do. But of course, their prayers are now enriched by Jesus. But they're going up to the temple and they see this lame beggar. And Luke is very clear. Remember, Luke is a physician, a Greek physician. He's very clear. There's some detail there that this lame beggar has been that way since birth. And Peter says to this beggar, I don't have any gold, I don't have any silver, I can't, you're begging for that, but here's what I do have, get up and walk. And the, the text talks about how the people are astonished, 
They're amazed, they're excited because here's this lame beggar jumping around. He's so happy that he's been healed. And there's an illustration here, I think, based on what Peter says in his short little homily that he gives, that as, as, a, as a people, as a, uh, those of us who follow Jesus, that there's a blessing here. And as heirs of God's promise, we also have a certain amount of responsibility to share that blessing. So we're not just sharing the blessing, but also the source of that blessing. And so the, the term here is you're blessed to bless others, which is in direct alignment with what God told Abraham. I'm going to bless you. Go and be a blessing. This is the same thing all over again. Lord Jesus has blessed you with certain things. Now go and be a blessing to others. That's part of what we call the economy of God. And I I think that this idea, this idea of, of blessed in order to bless others is an important thing for all of us to capture. Because I think if you have more resources... If you have more wood, you're not supposed to build higher fences, you're supposed to build longer tables. Does that make sense? You want to bless others, not keep other people out. You want to bless others. And so we have this healing event that takes place in the temple courts. I love, I love what Peter says. Peter says, why are you surprised? Because in chapter 2, they'd been doing miracles all along, and yet here they are, and they're surprised by this one. Apparently, maybe it was, I don't know, more public or something. I'm not really sure. But there's this healing event and there's this explanation that Peter and John give for that, for that event and it's about blessing others and there begins a shift in what's going on in the local politics. And you, if, you, if, you're, if you're reading through this quickly, you're going to miss it. You've, you've got to see what's actually occurring here. So remember, end of chapter 2, favor with all the people. Chapter 3, healing event. And today we're going to pick up chapter 4. So I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 4 and buckle up because this is going to get real interesting, okay? And, and what we're going to do is we're going to explore this kind of section by uh, section and let the story unfold as we read it. I'll have some of it up on screen, some of it I'll read instead. Um, but let's start here. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Remember, they're in the temple. This healing event has occurred. People are amazed. This is the context, right? The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, They put them in jail until the next day. That doesn't sound like favor to me. How about you? Right? But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Please remember, very often in the New Testament, when you see numbers like that, they're talking um, uh, only about men. Uh, So you can usually uh, figure that it's a larger number because you have women and children as well. So 5,000 men. Okay? So, let's pause, because this seems strange, don't you think? I mean, there's this miracle, and they get arrested for it. 
Now, Jesus got chastised for doing miracles, but he was never arrested for doing miracles. So, so they get put into jail overnight because not only did he heal, but he gave a short little message. Very interesting. Now, you have to remember, when every time we open the Bible, we're visitors, right? There are certain customs, and there's still certain cultural pieces that we don't fully understand. And so there's a cultural context piece here that I think we need to explore a little bit. And the place where we need to start is here, Sadducees. Now, up until this point, we we hear about the Sadducees occasionally, but most of the time we hear about what? Pharisees. These two groups of people are very different, very different indeed. And we have to understand some of the nuances here because this will begin to make more sense. Because remember, up until chapter 3 into chapter 4, we had favor with people. Now things are shifting because the local politicians got involved. Let's just be honest about it, okay? Sadducees were a Jewish sect. So you had people who were Jewish, but they had certain um, patterns of belief that were a little bit different than, than, than some of the other sects. And so what they chose was that you had Torah alone. That's the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? You had Torah alone. Where a Pharisee not only believed in Torah, but also in what the ancient rabbis taught about Torah or the interpretation of Scripture. So you had not only the Torah, but you had what the rabbis taught about Torah, if I can simplify it as best as I can. So you have Torah alone versus Torah and the interpretation of Torah. Does this make sense? Okay, so you've got a group of people who are very, what I, I guess I would call them kind of ultra-conservative. Um, interestingly enough, that most of the Sadducees were wealthy elites centered in the capital of Jerusalem. Fascinating. They denied the existence of spirits and they denied the resurrection of the dead. That's why they were sad, you see? I'll be here all week. Don't forget to tip your waitress. <laughs> Sorry. But they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Now, here's the important thing. This is the thing you have to remember. What did Peter and John preach? Proclaiming in Jesus the what? Resurrection of the dead. Do you see that? And by the way, they were doing it again in chapter 3 as well. They were talking about the resurrection of Jesus. So it wasn't about the miracle. That was, that was fine. It was, oh, no, 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 no. Now you're talking about the resurrection. Mm-mm, we can't have that. And the religious elites who also happened to be wealthy, who also happened to be conservative, and oh, yeah, here's a lot, another little tidbit. The Sadducees were perfectly fine with Rome. Not that they wanted the Romans there, but if the Romans were going to be in power, they were going to be embedded with them. Politics. Why? Because it kept them in power. Makes sense. So, you start talking about resurrection of the dead, we're going to bring soldiers and we're going to take you off to jail. That's ultimately what happens here. So we know in, in here in Acts 4, verse 2, and then in Acts chapter 3, verse 26, they were talking about the resurrection of the, of the dead and the Sadducees arrested them in order to shut them up. You have to understand that. That's what's going on here. There is a theological problem, and they arrest them just to silence them. It's a big deal. 
Now, let's go on. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? Which is really weird because they told them what they did, right? I mean, didn't we just see that? I mean, you know, this Jesus who God raised from the dead. We already told you this. But we want to know the source or, better yet, who put you up to this? Because remember, there's an ongoing discussion within Judaism about the resurrection of the dead. And when you practice deceit, you tend to look for deceit in others. And so you've got this group of Sadducees who, well, why is this theological issue coming up? What's going on here? What's happening that you would bring up the resurrection of the dead? Because obviously, somebody puts you up to this. Do you see this? Do you see how their minds are working? That there's some political intrigue? I think that's what they were looking for. And they really thought that this hot-button issue came up for a very specific reason. And the Sadducees are looking for this. Not a big stretch, is it? Yeah, I don't think so. Verse 8, Then Peter, love this, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is is lame and are being asked how he was healed, in other words, he's saying, why are we here? Are we here because of, are we here because of a healing? This very good thing that occurred, is that why we're here? I mean, think about this. You know, Peter's just like, you just put me in jail and all we did was heal somebody. He says, why are we here? Ultimately, that's the question that he's, he's asking. And, and I love this, he says, uh, the man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, and it's almost like Peter's like, okay, you asked for it. Here it comes. Then know this. <laughs> Uh-oh. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. There it is again. That this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, but there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Ultimately, what Peter is saying here is like, you want to know the authority? You want to know by whose name, by what power? It's Jesus, the risen one. It's Jesus. He's the glitch in the matrix. He really is. You don't like the theology, but the Holy Spirit is calling you out. And you've got to wrestle with it. And by the way, good luck with that. If you're a first century Jew, Peter is throwing down. But he really is laying it down on the line and challenging some some pretty significant theology by some very powerful people. Kind of like what Jesus did. But remember, he's filled by the Holy Spirit. It's important. And you've got to wrestle with it. Boom, there it is. Moving on, verse 13. I love this. This is one of my favorite passages in all of Acts. When they, meaning the, the, the uh, elders and rulers, when they saw the courage of Peter and John 
and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. Shazam. unschooled why would Jesus choose them and I'm thinking maybe because they weren't like the religious leaders duh (laughs) maybe they're not like you and in verse 14 funny how evidence changes the conversation you know there's part of me I wonder if the healed man wasn't just standing there if he was kind of moving around a little bit you know he's still getting his feet under him because it's been overnight right you know, was he kind of tap dancing a little bit, you know, on his feet? I don't know. I mean, that's what happens in David world. But um, I, I think that, that he's moving around a little bit and there's this evidence. And I think what really happens here, if we, if we kind of read between the lines what's going on here, is that you've got this group of, of religious leaders and they find or they realize that there is no political intrigue happening here at all. That you have these unschooled men who just did a miracle in the name of this traveling rabbi who is scandalously crucified. There's no political intrigue here, and there's, that, that has got to be category breaking. Does that make sense? There's got to be a place in their mind where they're just saying, well, what? Oh, wait a minute, this doesn't, this doesn't make any sense to me. I think they realize there's nothing going on here and it really is about a healing and it really is about a resurrected Jesus. And as much as they want to make it about something else, at its core, it's about those two things. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, that's the governing body, and then they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? Because it's really funny, when you're used to like political intrigue and you're, you're, you're dealing with politics and you have people who don't want to deal with politics or are dealing with something bigger, like say a resurrected Jesus, they're not playing by your same rules. What are we going to do with them? That, that's the question. What are we going to do with these men? Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Hmm. Then they called Peter and John in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. (laughs) But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Remember, Jesus asked them to be what? Witnesses. This is the idea of giving testimony, of of bearing witness. And after further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. And he was lame Since what? Birth. That's a long time to be lame. Long time. 
I just find it really interesting that Luke has this eye for detail. Of course, he's a physician. This would be interesting to him. But I want you to think about something even more profound. You have a person who has been lame since birth. It means they can't walk. It means that there's something wrong. And they can't move around. Can you imagine the atrophy in those muscles? So when that person stood on their legs, in, in Acts chapter 3, it says that his, his ankles were made strong. Can you see it grow? This is a dramatic healing. This is something so astonishing because people could see that was before, this is now, and those two things are very different. The drama here is astonishing if we think about it. Forty years. Lame since birth. Now, open your Bible. And let's look at Acts chapter 4, and we're going to start at verse 23. I want to read this. <clears throat> Oops, not John, Acts. It helps when you get the right, right book. Acts chapter 4, beginning with verse 23. There it is. He was over 40 years old. Verse 23. On the release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage? And the people plot in vain. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your, uh, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miracles, signs, and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. What was the response here? Worship and prayer, maybe? Yes, Peter and John were delivered. But there was still tension within the city and with these religious leaders. But oh, oh to have the same response that they did, that when things happen that are negative, that we would respond with worship and prayer. Oh to do that. And I'll be honest, I, that's not my first response. But that's the kind of person that I want to become. I've got a couple of thoughts on this story that I want to share. And I think, um, I think they're important. The first thing is we must understand. We must understand this. This is going to get me into trouble, but that's okay. We must understand 
that Jesus is contrary to all power structures other than God's kingdom. All of them. Including your political party of choice. Resistance should be expected because Jesus ultimately is a threat. Jesus and his kingdom is a threat to existing power structures because he doesn't play by the same rules. Ever. And so he's outside of those things. And here's the other thing that I've noticed. Because we can talk about politics all day long. But let's make it a little more real. Let's, as the kids say, keep it 100. See, I get out a little bit, right? But here's the thing. When God pokes at your beliefs, you resist too. We all do it. See, we can, we can talk about the kingdom of God being contrary to power structures, but each one of us has our own power structure. We all like to think that we're in control of this, and we try to be in control of those things. And that doesn't mean that you don't have a certain amount of personal responsibility, but at the end of the day, when God begins to poke at your theology and your pet beliefs, with Jesus, we resist too. We do that. And this is why I think when we talk about the presence of God, we just sang about it. This is why the presence of God is so important. Why we chase after the presence of God. It's so important that we do that because in his presence, you can actually ask him, God, is this true? I'll tell you a quick story. I wasn't planning on doing this, but um, earlier this week, uh, I did a little exercise in my journal. And I was thinking about um, some, some things that I grew up with, some, some junk that I had learned along the way. Um, we, we all have that. <clears throat> and I believed one thing about those values that I grew up with. And over a period of about an hour and a half or so of just journaling about those things, I realized that it wasn't the value that was off, but it was how I interpreted it. God began to show me that some of those values that I grew up with were really good. Now, they may have been taken to an extreme, and I may not have made great choices based on those values, but the ultimate thing was that God goes in and begins to poke and prod at things that I believed about myself and about the way I grew up, and I resisted because I like my interpretation. It's comfortable. But he began to show me, no, 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 there's more to it than this. And at the end of it, I was so very, very thankful. In my family, um, we tended not to take a whole lot of risks. Um, and I am personally a much more of a risk taker. Uh, I'm still not going to jump out of an airplane or anything like that. I have no, no, no desire to take those kind of risks, but I like taking calculated risks. And I realized that some of the decisions that I made in my life were based on this value of safety that I had learned. That's not a bad thing. Does that make sense? 
I needed that to be restoried just a little bit so that I could see that, no, you've got a wife and kids. You, you need to make sure that you're taking care of them and that if your risks are going to, if you're going to make them, they've got to be calculated. I didn't know that. I didn't understand that that thing that I thought was holding me back wasn't holding me back at all, but actually keeping me safe from doing some really dumb things, right? And we all have those, and maybe yours is more dramatic than that, but for me, that was a profound moment. But in that moment, I resisted that truth that was going on in my own heart. Because when, when God starts poking at our theology, we resist him, and that's why in his presence we can ask those questions. Here's the other thing I want you to notice. Verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. That sounds like presence, doesn't it? A little bit. Here's the good news. It means you can play too. Seminary is not a requirement, although it might help a little bit, but, you know, it's not a requirement at all. Because people who are spending time with Jesus are changed. And his presence is his power. And that's when things begin to happen. And that means you can play too. And so we listen for God. We process what we're hearing in community with other people. And we do what he asks. And then watch what happens. Amazing things begin to occur. Maybe it's dramatic like, a lame beggar walking, but maybe it's not. Maybe a, a relationship is being healed. Maybe some of your own shame begins to unravel. Maybe there's freedom. Um, I was at a conference a couple of weeks ago. Um, and in that conference, I watched a young man realize that his earthly father was not as good as his heavenly father, and he sobbed for 10 minutes straight. And he literally watched the chains fall off of him because he was in the presence of God in that moment. And that's when God speaks truth to us. And that's when God begins to work in our hearts, changing us from the inside out. And so we listen for what God has to say. We, we process that within a community of a blessing of other people who care and we do what he asks, and that's when things begin to occur. And I wonder, I wonder, in my heart of hearts, what would a church like that be like? What would that be like? This is Family Sunday. Kids, I'm glad you're here. And we're going to do this thing called communion. It's this ancient ritual that Jesus asked us to do to remember him by. Now in some traditions, um, they put a lot of mystical value. We don't necessarily believe that. But what I do believe is that by the grace, and by the fact that we are gathered in his name, Jesus is here. He's actually here. And so when we take the bread, and we dip it in the juice, and we eat it, we are doing so in the presence of God himself. He's here. And this is something that we remember him by. A simple, simple act. 
And as you take it and eat it, here's the thing I want you to think about. This is the, I guess I'm going to call it the prayer of my own heart. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your, spirit, your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and to perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Jesus. 